from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how is the virus impacting the clean economy? A conversation with the GreenBiz analyst team. Bill Gates and Al Gore invest in plant-based protein. How coronavirus is driving digital freight. And Thomas Costigan on hacking planet Earth. We could all use a reboot right about now, this week on 350. It's March 27th, 2020. March is finally almost over. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her social distancing perch in snowy Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It, it did melt. The snow did melt, thank goodness. And I'm looking at the forsythia and the daffodils and the the early cherry blossoms. Um, so it is, is a, a gray, but... Uh, sparkled with color day here in Midland Park. Well, spring is springing there. That's good. It's hard to celebrate all that mm -hmm. right now. How, how are you doing? Uh, what, what's your sort of state of mind right now? Not, not just personally, but and also professionally. So personally, I, I, like everyone else, am having a hard time not I saw the reference to misery scrolling, you know, looking for the data and and, and reading about what's going on in the world. And uh, in New Jersey, it's a little disconcerting. We're next to New York, which is, of course, is the, the state with the biggest number of cases. They're quite overwhelmed. And New Jersey, my little state of New Jersey, has the second highest number of cases. I think it's about 3,700 as of uh, when we're recording this. Um, but it, it's weird to me that that's higher than like California. And you guys have like four times the population. So it's, it's a little frightening. Um, but I am encouraged by many of the wonderful efforts. You know, we, we, I can't possibly point to all the companies that are really starting to mobilize, but I've seen some really amazing examples of innovation to get around what's going on and to, to get around the shortages. And so that, that gives me hope. Yeah, you wrote about that this weekend. You know, we, we've been kicking around, uh, you and me and others, but, you know, is this okay to write about other things beyond the virus? And I, I think the answer is absolutely and unapologetically mm -hmm. yes. I mean, mm -hmm. we need to acknowledge what's going on and as we're doing right now in this podcast. But uh, there's lots of other things we're going to be talking about in the next few minutes. And uh, I think that's a good uh, uh, metaphor for, for the coverage in general in terms of, you know, yeah, you know, we, we need to acknowledge this. But the world of sustainability continues it, uh, remarkably and um, relentlessly. So there is a lot going on. And, and we at GreenBiz uh, in our editorial and, and our events and everything else are determined to keep that flame burning and keep everybody, the mm -hmm. great audience, informed and uh, and all that. So um, that's, you know, we, we, we do it and that's what we do. Well, how are you processing? I mean, what's on your mind? You I'm know, just it wondering. <laughs> it depends on the day <laughs> and the hour, but you know, uh, you know, being an over sixty, I'm in a vulnerable group, so that's disconcerting and, and a little bit anxiety-producing. But you know, sheltering in place and staying away from everybody. And I don't think there are very many cases at all in Oakland. If there are, it's a, I don't know that you need both hands to count them. So uh, that's good. So we, we seem to be relatively good shape here. And to your earlier point, California took action uh, much earlier than other states and, and the Bay Area, even before the state of California, in terms of getting us all in, back in our homes to, to stay around for a while. So um, that's what we're doing. And, uh, you know, and basically, I made it through this week, and I'll make it through the next one. I'm sure it'll be just fine. But you know what, let's move on and make it through the week in review. So I'd like to start with one of my hopeful stories of the week, and that is a piece that Katie Fehrenbacher did on how the logistics uh, industry is responding to the pandemic. And specifically, there are some great examples of digital technologies, companies like Flexport and Flexe and Convoy 
that are using artificial intelligence, Adida, and so forth to get products like gloves and testing kits and ventilators and, and baby supplies and so forth from, from the places they are, which is not necessarily a normal place, to the places where they need to be, the hot spots that are desperate for these, these sorts of things. And, and you know how we're, we're sort of seeing the transportation industry change its normal ways of scheduling and moving goods around. So she's got a great piece this week on, um, on that. It, it, and one of the things that I, I found, and I wrote about this a little bit as, as well, is some of the, the companies that are, are picking up the slack in terms of making things. Like, so I, I wrote about Bloom Energy uh, basically taking old, old ventilators that weren't being used and helping the state of California refurbish them. And they, they're, they're planning to get, I think, hundreds of them per week out, like pronto, within 24 hours, they were able to get some done. There's other examples, Tesla, of course, but but you know the, the people that are really making these goods and, and so forth are also leaning more heavily on these digital services. Yeah, I think this is one of those silver lining stories where we start to see how the need to respond to coronavirus is actually uh, creating some new capabilities or some new business models or some some just some new ways of operating. Uh, that uh, I'm guessing will then pour it over to the post-coronavirus world. Um, and uh, some of that has to do with uh, more flexibility and, and efficiency in, in not just shipping, but also getting things to where they need in, in, uh, in critical times like this one. Um, so I think that we're going to be seeing um, more and more companies uh, you know, also looking at how they can uh, – swap out uh, manufacturing processes quickly to switch from, say, cars to ventilators. You know, there's factories that have gone from apparel to masks. And so uh, I think there's a lot that um, we're going to learn from this in terms of even more flexible, maybe more localized, and definitely efficient uh, systems of of operating. So there's a lot of innovation happening here. And that takes us to another story, one that you did this week, Heather, uh, about uh, investment made by Al Gore and Bill Gates. Um, talk a little bit about Nature's Find, F-Y-N-D. Yes, this is one of those really fascinating stories. And I'll, I'll just be clear, it wasn't the actual Al Gore and Bill Gates that, that invested in it. It was their, their big funds, though. Generation Investment Management, which is the venture capital firm chaired by, by Al Gore, and Breakthrough Energy Ventures, um, the fund established by Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, but also that has a ton of other billionaires is involved. They are putting eight, eight zero, 80 million into this company. It used to be called Sustainable Bioproducts, and it is now called Nature's Find. And the reason for that name is that it is a company that's creating alternative proteins based on microbes found in the Yellowstone National Park hot springs. When I got this pitch, it was one of those things I was like, I have to talk to these people. But it turns out that um, this this organization has worked with NASA and, and a lot of other scientific agencies to figure out how to take the organisms in the hot springs, which live under these remarkable conditions. The, the, the temperatures are up to 456 degrees Fahrenheit. It's super acidic in some of them. But these are the microbes. They create these wonderful, colorful mats that sit on top of the springs and, and all of the pools that you see throughout the park. And scientists have figured out how to um, sort of basically mimic what they do and create a fermentation process that's great for creating protein. So Nature's Find has uh, cr- cranked up a, a plant in Chicago. They, they're in Chicago uh, testing all sorts of ways that they they might be able to use this protein, um, and they've got some really interesting uh, executives that have joined from places like Kraft Foods and PepsiCo and McDonald's, and they've already got fifty people up in um, in in testing things in that factory. So, wow! I mean, who knew that? I know. <laughs> old, old Faithful was a carnivore. I mean, that's that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, you know, this is I think part of what we're seeing now with. Uh, a lot of these investment funds that are really starting to get uh, lean in with big money on big kinds of issues. In other words, uh, venture capital often says, "Well, you know, we'll put in a million and see how it goes. Then we'll put in five million, ten million, 
So here you have breakthrough energy, which is Bill Gates' vehicle, as you said, uh, investing in things like nuclear fission and enhanced geothermal systems and and ultra low cost wind and solar. And that's just on the energy side. They've got uh, low G greenhouse gas steel and and low greenhouse gas paper and chemicals. Uh, really interesting uh, investments that they're making and of things that are, you know, sort of deep in the supply chains. Of, of, of the things that we buy and, and, and use every day. And I think that's going to be remarkable. Uh, some of that stuff is going to be commercialized. A lot of it won't work out. But I think we're going to be seeing some great results from these and, and a growing number of other funds that are starting to uh, place these bigger bets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, I mean, and, and I just think that this company is so compelling. They are testing, like I said, lots of different things, everything from sweet to savory. Um, and they are going to create their own retail products, right? So they will have things on the shelves, um, but they are also going to license their technology to others, other companies, food companies. So I, I see a lot of potential. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the sort of space thing is, is a really compelling story as well. They, they don't require that much space. This, the 35,000 square foot facility can, can create as much animal protein in, in a year, like a hamburger equivalent as... 15,000 acres of yeah. land. Yeah. So pretty compelling, um, you know, carbon reduction <laughs> proposition there too. So one, definitely one to watch. Well, well, let's talk about a different kind of return on investment, which is ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment, ROSI, which is this topic of a piece from John Davies, our Vice President and Senior Analyst at GreenBiz, who attended a event, uh, I guess, last month at NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business, um, which was the, Rosie was the focus of this, which is, you know, a playbook, as he describes it, for drilling down into the, the, the kind of discrete actions and activities that can mitigate risk or capitalize on some of the clean economy opportunities uh, and, and start to uh, put some real uh, rigor into understanding what kinds of returns you're getting for these kinds of investments. Um, it's uh, a work in progress, like so many of these things, but um, uh, he talks a little bit about a couple of examples there and, and the conversation that was uh, taking place in New York for this. I, I just think that these kinds of, of metrics are uh, critical in most cases, not every case, but in a lot of cases for understanding the and translating the qualitative business benefits of, of sustainability efforts and translating those into dollars and cents. This is going to be something that could be super important now as we come out of this, when we come out of this situation where we've got people now scrutinizing their, their costs. I mean, we are going to have a very different economic scenario for the sustainability teams moving forward. We don't know how long. And this kind of tool is going to be absolutely critical and, and, and probably a really positive, useful thing. Like now you can be the hero again, right? You can go in and, and help, help the CFO understand the business case much better. Um, so I would encourage, I've, 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 uh, Heard, heard presentations about this tool and seen the benefits as well. I, I was able to attend this particular conference last year, and it's just an amazingly remarkable um, uh, framework and, and lots, of, lots of data that the NYU folks have provided. And I know there's a lot of really good, great case studies involved, so I would highly recommend looking at it as well. Yeah, and, and then the question is, what happens to projects that don't necessarily pencil out Mm. but have some kinds of benefits. And I think this mm -hmm. is that sort of gray area mm -hmm. where uh, we sort of need to look at what are the other benefits. And I, and I want to uh, maybe end this section with a quote uh, that Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson, uh, speaking to uh, Jim Cramer on CNBC uh, earlier this week, said, not every decision is a financial one. This is a mm -hmm. time to prioritize people over profit. Uh, that's the CEO of Starbucks. It's a, you know... Uh, easy to say, hard to do, but the fact that you have CEOs saying these kinds of things uh, really points up the need. And it's, it's, it's like that old uh, adage that not everything that uh, can be measured is important and not everything that's important can be measured. Uh, we're just learning how to do some of these things. And the question, like any tool, is how to use it wisely.
So we did another webcast this week, this one on the circular economy as it relates to retailers. I didn't have a chance to listen in, but uh, I think you were able to uh, hear some of it and capture some clips. So talk about what happened. I lent my ears to this webcast. Indeed, it was a, a super one on circularity in the retail sector and uh, some really terrific participants. We had uh, Lisa Davis, sustainability manager with IKEA, uh, Chelsea Evans, sustainability lead with Nordstrom, and then two folks from Walgreens, Lawrence Stone, who's the director of corporate social responsibility, and Dan Leskovic. He is the senior manager of sustainability and waste reduction. And there were, I mean, <laughs> I guess one of the, the one of the more striking things is that there's so many opportunities to build circular economy principles into the retail model. Everything from e-commerce to, of course, waste. Think something you've talked a lot about in the past, Joel, is is how do you deal with the returns and what happens to them, and 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 the, the whole transportation uh, component of it. Um, but I wanted to point to two specific things. Um, First of all, um, mattresses, right? How many times, Joel, have you seen mattresses lying out in the street? <laughs> people getting rid of mattresses, you know, it's like this this thing that that people don't want it. Like it's kind of an ick factor. Like, do you, what do you do with a mattress when it's done? Like, yeah. you, know, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a race between uh, mattresses and couches as, as to which ones get left out more. But yeah, I get the right. point. So I wanted to. So given that context, I wanted to point out. Um, uh, I wanted to cue up this this. Uh, this clip from Lisa Davis with IKEA, uh, uh, they're testing mattress recycling. And here's some of the lessons that they are learning. Initially, for those of you who know, um, we've had regulation which was put in place in the first three states, California. Actually, it started in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and then California. Um, and there we uh, have to collect a fee at the point of sale from customers. That fee is used to fund infrastructure of recycling in those states. We set up the program in those particular states, and then we use that to expand mattress recycling across the country, where um, now all mattresses um, that are either returned or displays in our operations, or when the customer purchases a new mattress and purchases a fee for the pickup of an old mattress, all of those mattresses now go to recyclers. One of the learnings of that particular program is the fact that mattress recycling is quite costly. Um, it is inconsistent in infrastructure across the country. Um, and there are often times where you have to move the mattresses further than you would like to move them to um, um, make mattress recycling actually happen. But um, being able to recycle mattresses across the country was quite a feat for us and it is in place today. And then one of the other things I'd like to mention, Joel, is just the importance of retailers talking to their customers about what they're doing, right? And why they're doing this and why certain, you know, why, why a product that, that's refurbished or repaired or made out of recycled substances is, is, is a, a product that they should consider and is a product that it's got some cool, right? Some, some cred <laughs> to it. Um, and so the other clip that I'd like to cue up is from Chelsea Evans. And uh, she's, as I mentioned before, is with Nordstrom. And she's talking here about a, uh, a place they created on their website to help consumers understand why they're supporting sustainably sourced apparel. There's some exciting work coming uh, in this product input space, but also uh, questions, you know, even designing for circularity. I think right now probably most of these things that, you're, that I've got on the screen are mixed materials, and so I'm not sure how well they could be broken back down again. Um, so I think as we all look toward mono materials, um, designing with one kind of material in mind um, for circularity, that will be uh, coming up next. So another way that we're supporting circularity is really with product choice. So beyond just supporting, um, you know, different inputs in the materials in the, in the products, the clothing, uh, is really helping customers find those things so that we can prove out that case that it's important uh, to, that, that customers want this kind of product. So we launched a sustainable product category um, last year. It's called Sustainable Style. Right now um, it primarily features apparel, home goods, shoes, um, and within that category, 
you can go shop on Nordstrom.com and find products that are more sustainable, including using more sustainably sourced materials, which would, would include, among others, um, recycled content. So products in the sustainably sourced materials section need to have 50% or more of a more sustainably sourced material um, in that item. And that would include things, again, like recycled poly, uh, recycled uh, nylon and cotton, and certainly all of the branded ones um, that you may be familiar with as well. Um, all of that is available on our site. So we're really trying to facilitate you know, this carrot approach where I want to support the brands that are making products in this way by helping our customers find them faster, sort for them, filter for them, um, so that they can really shop with the way that they, um, with their values, with what they care about. Well, that's really great stuff. And if you want to hear the entire recording of the archived webcast from this week, how retailers can embrace the circular economy, go to greenbiz.com slash events slash webcasts. As the coronavirus continues to roil our world, I wanted to check in with the Green Biz Analyst team to understand how and how much the pandemic is impacting the key topics we cover, the good, the bad, and the nothing-to-see-here realities. So earlier this week, I did just that. Joining me now from their respective home offices are Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer at GreenBiz and Conference Chair of Verge Transport, Sarah Golden, Senior Energy Analyst and Conference Chair of Verge Energy, Jim Giles, Senior Analyst for Food and Carbon Systems, who chairs both Verge Carbon and Verge Food, and Lauren Phipps, Director and Senior Analyst of Circular Economy, who chairs our Circularity and Verge Circular Conferences. Hello, everyone. Hi, Joel. Hey, Joe. hey, Joe. So, Katie, let's start with you. How is the pandemic affecting the conversation and activity around transportation and mobility systems? Wow. So the conversation around transportation and the pandemic are that, uh, you know, because people have stopped moving, transportation across modes has completely shut down. So transportation sectors, whether it's public transit, airlines, um, mobility services, they're all seeing a massive drop in demand. Um, and so they are just struggling across the board. For example, you know, public transit is in the U.S. is asking for a $16 billion bailout. Um, mobility services like Lime and Bird, the e-scooters companies, they halted service in U.S. and Europe doing layoffs right now. I mean, we've all been paying attention to the airlines, but, you know, they're asking for a bailout. Um, some of the little longer term ones are electric vehicle demand is expected to drop because of the recession following the pandemic. Um, so it's it's not good. Uh, it's pretty ugly. Um, and a couple other um, things that are kind of interesting are, you know, freight shipments are continuing continue to go. So, um, you know, people need goods, but there's we've seen a dramatic um, spike and drop in certain types of goods. So that is a really interesting kind of dynamic market around the freight industry. And then there's all those Uber and Lyft drivers who are either out of work or are fearing for their lives as they pick up strangers who are then breathing the same air in their relatively confined space for a few minutes or longer. Do you think that most of these things are going to bounce back when we get through the other side of this? Or is this going to be uh, have some longer lasting impacts? I think it'll long, last longer than, um, you know, just a month or two. I think it'll have, you know, at least in the in the short term, several months of impact, um, you know, particularly, say, with the bigger industries like the airlines or public transit. I think they're going to be hit really hard for a really long time. Um, I think one thing that might have an even longer effect is, you know, as people spend more and more time telecommuting and working from home, you know, maybe some of the behaviors of, um, driving and um, relying on single vehicles might stick. So, um, you know, people might potentially start to adopt some of these behaviors of, you know, slower movement and less movement over time. Um, but I think the long-term ramifications just financially are going to be really dire for a lot of these companies. Well, let's move over to talk about energy with Sarah Golden. Uh, Sarah, again, how is the pandemic affecting the conversation and, and more importantly, the, the business around uh, clean and distributed energy systems? 
Yeah, it a, a lot is happening right now in energy, and there's a lot of different angles that should be considered and covered. And I'm just going to name three of them. Um, one is this macro thing that's going on with the oil market, with costs just being in free fall. Um, and this has to do with different, you know, political things that are going on that is a whole podcast in itself. But there's currently a price war going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia that's making the cost of a barrel of oil just plummet. Um, So that is having a lot of impacts on our domestic production, especially within the Permian Basin, where we've been seeing a lot of expansion and a lot of different oil companies and smaller uh, uh, energy developers that have been investing in products projects there that no longer make financial sense for the time being. So there's sort of this holding pattern of figuring out what will make sense in the long term for those. And in the meantime, that has a has impacts on the cost of electricity and the demand for um, potentially it will have impacts for how people are demanding renewable energy if wholesale market prices are going down drastically from fossil fuels. The second trend is that there's an impact right now on infrastructure infrastructure projects that are all on hold. And that's just because of sheltering in place means that we can't have crews out that are working on the renewable energy projects. And as a result, a lot of the times that they'll come online are being pushed out. And that has implications for the finance behind them. And that's because we have two different Um, Two different things that are helping these projects, the investment tax credit for solar, which is set to decrease by the end of the year, and the production tax credit for wind. And so this is a huge problem if these projects can't be online by the end of the year and can't benefit from these tax credits. So there's groups of renewable energy developers that are currently lobbying to have an extension on these different tax credits to make sure that these renewable projects pencil in the way that we need them to pencil in order for them to be viable. And then there's also um, there's ways that we're, we're calculating that renewable energy towards renewable portfolio standards and other goals that we have to be meeting renewable energy. So that's definitely a space to watch. And then the last one is just that our energy demand is incredibly unpredictable. Uh, So some reports have been coming out that have been showing that since Italy's lockdown, the country has seen around a 20% reduction in peak demand from energy, which is really huge. And right now in the U.S., we're seeing this reduction in energy in individual spots, too. Um, Recently, I heard that East Bay Community Energy, which is a community energy aggregator here in the East Bay, has seen about a 10% drop in the residential sector, which really surprises me because everybody's at home. Home right now, and I that is counterintuitive for me. And then, of course, everything that's happening with manufacturing and industrial is ramping way down, and that is putting utilities in a really tough spot. It means that they will be collecting less in rates from ratepayers. And uh, we have also temporarily suspended disconnect policies, which means that we won't be cutting people off from energy if they aren't able to pay their energy bills, which is great for people, but it's also putting utilities in a tough spot. And it's also putting a hold on utility infrastructure projects, which is where utilities are making a lot of money. And it's difficult for for utilities generally to um, really balance the grid if we are having these unpredictable points where we don't know what the demand and supply is going to be. Well, that's a great download, but I have to ask you about the impact of of oil prices. They're at a 20-something year low right now. Um, That usually has a negative impact on on electric vehicles and and, uh, a positive increase on gas guzzlers uh, and purchases. Uh, Do you see anything or anticipate any movement there? I'm guessing people aren't going to the showrooms this week or maybe not for a while, but what what do you think is going to happen there? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And partially, I think that it's way too early to tell. Overall, my feeling is that it wouldn't be impacting the uptake greatly because we have other policies that are encouraging people to buy EVs and be transitioning to electric appliances. And a lot of those aren't driven just by the market. And the other thing is, I don't think that oil prices are going to be staying this low for very long because right now it seems that Saudi Arabia and Russia are really inflicting a lot of harm on their own economies. So it seems like right now this might be a blip, but 
it's so early, it's really hard to tell what how consumers would re- really react to this. Well, let's motor on over to Jim Giles and talk. Uh, what are we going to talk about first, food or carbon, Jim? You've got quite a lot on your plate, uh, pun partially intended. Where do we begin in terms of what's the impact of what's going on on those markets? Yeah, let's do food because I think that's where we're seeing the most immediate and the most disturbing impacts. Uh, so certainly... If you look at restaurants and food service, they are uh, they're in trouble. Basically, um, you know, here in San Francisco, all the restaurants, all the bars are closed. Uh, the restaurants are open for takeout, but judging by the pleas uh, for help that I'm seeing uh, on Twitter and social media, I think a lot of people are not going out for takeout. Um, and the restaurant industry is an, is just notoriously tight margin. And um, these are small businesses that don't have big cash reserves. So I think a lot of them are just going to disappear. And their workers are suffering too. You know, again, these are workers without a lot of cash reserves, workers who are typically paid around the minimum wage. um, And and now they're not getting paid anything at all. Um, And this is actually something where all of us can help. You know, if you have a if you have a favorite restaurant that uh, is is has had to shut down, but it offers gift cards now, is a great moment to buy one and to, to help them get through it. Um, and on on food service, which is a, a different kind of industry, obviously these are much larger companies we're talking out here, um, so they're more robust. They can stand a greater chance of surviving this, but they're hurting because some of their biggest customers, colleges and schools, have closed down as well. And the longer this goes on, the tougher it's going to get for them. So these are the, the Sedexos and the Aramarks and the Bon Appetits of the world that are you're talking about when you refer to food service? Exactly, yeah. And then the other people that, you know, the other sector I've been hearing from is the uh, producer sector. Um, so far, supply chains are held, holding up pretty well. So for some producers, it is, I wouldn't call it business as usual, but it's something approaching that. Uh, the concerns that they ha- have are around labor. Um, so, you know, obviously, as the year goes on, they need more and more labor. And there are question marks around whether the movement restrictions, particularly at Mexican border um, and the availability of visas, uh, whether that's going to impact their ability to get the seasonal labor they need. Um, but we're also seeing some kind of interesting things happening. So I heard from Stemple Creek Ranch, which is a, a small beef operation in Marin, just on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, they're telling me that they lost uh, their restaurant orders, obviously, but they have an enormous surge in online orders, so much so that they, they weren't even sure if they could keep up. They've hired new people. They are keeping up. And I think that raises a really interesting question about, you know, if we find ourselves in this situation for a prolonged period, which looks totally plausible, and people get used to ordering online and get used to ordering, in this case, direct from producers, whether we'll see that sort of behavior maintained uh, in the long time after this crisis is over and whether that might uh, permanently reshape the industry in some way. Yeah, that was kind of my question, because this is one area where the demand isn't any different, presumably, than it was before. People still eat every day multiple times. We're just eating in different ways. So who do you think stands to win, uh, at least in the uh, short term and maybe the longer term, uh, in terms of uh, you know getting more business out of this? Uh, I would imagine it's supermarkets. Well, anyone with a robust online business stands to win, certainly in the short term and potentially in the long term. So you know there was news, I believe, last week that Amazon is hiring a hundred thousand additional workers. Lots of stories about online grocers making smaller hires. And I'm sure like everyone who's tried to to order online from Whole Foods or, or it through Instacart has experienced the delays because of the huge demand. But I think, again, this interesting question is, what does this mean in the long term? Because so much of our commerce has migrated online and uh, supermarket shopping is to some extent an exception there. And still the clear majority of groceries get purchased in store. Um, and people have been waiting for a long time and kind of asking why that transition to online ordering hasn't happened quicker. And maybe this is the thing that, that really pushes that into that realm. And, and then I think there are big questions for the smaller operators. It's fine if your Whole Foods now owned by Amazon, perfect position to, to sort of take up that, that extra demand online. But for the smaller operations, uh, without, uh, a sort of robust online ordering systems, it's going to be much harder and they may lose market share. 
for some reason in 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 my neighborhood or at least in various neighborhoods around Oakland the uh, uh, the smaller ones are the ones that seem to have everything in stock um, the the big stores are <laughs> denuded of of lots of different things but they go to the small neighborhood stores and uh, and I've been surprised to find that they have the best selection in some cases I've I've noticed that and I have no explanation for it. Okay, well, let's move over, last, definitely not least, to the circular economy and Lauren Phipps. Lauren, what are you seeing out there? So I think much of the conversation around the impact of COVID-19 on circularity is quite speculative at this point. I think um, looking higher up on the waste hierarchy, shifts in consumption patterns are huge right now. It's not really when people are going to be flocking to stores for the new uh, fashions of the season. Um, and there's really more of a focus on using what you have better for, for longer. Uh, and you see that with Amazon, of course, prioritizing medical supplies and household staples as well. Um, and I think the question will be, depending on how the, long this continues, if this will really be supporting uh, local repair and more of the fix-it culture uh, for folks who can't go into a shop to have something repaired to really keep the things that they do have uh, better in the, given the state of the world right now. Um, and I think the broader conversation is around local resilience, around communities coming together and sharing resources, keeping socially distanced, of, of course, um, and looking at some of the ways that when global and international supply chains can be questioned or, or cut off, there's really more of a value of turning to what you can do locally to keep things going forward. I think looking lower on the waste hierarchy, there's the huge question around single-use reusables and safety. Uh, coffee companies and like Starbucks have stopped accepting reusable to-go mugs, and many grocery stores aren't allowing consumers to bring in their reusable bags. And I think rather than dealing with the reality, you know, there's conflicting thoughts on whether or not the virus can stay on those materials, but sanitation exists and folks can dis disinfect them. But I think the big question is, will this change consumers and companies' readiness and willingness to shift towards reusables? So that's the big question that many are talking about right now and, and how this will impact perceptions and mindsets moving forward. Um, and as Sarah mentioned, another big question is, of course, on the declining price of oil and wondering if this will really have a catastrophic effect on the burgeoning markets for post-consumer recycled content and recycled especially. So those are some of the big things that I'm seeing. But again, it's very speculative and quite anecdotal at this point. So one of the things I've been curious about here is given the push on sanitation and and just sort of being being protected in in general uh, against all kinds of things will we sort of rethink our relationship with plastic i mean plastic is sort of a, a savior right now it's it's uh yes it, like everything it can you know be a carrier of of the virus but also it's protecting a lot of things and and the single use is, has become uh, uh sort of part and parcel uh, at least in some kinds of of activities for uh cleanliness or hygiene what do you think is going to happen there because we've been on this plastic is bad plastic you know single use plastic we we have to stop it we have to in some people say we have to stop plastic altogether what, what do you think uh, is this is going to do to that? I think that this brings a level of necessary nuance and complexity to that conversation because taking a step back and looking at the world now, packaging and plastic serves a very vital purpose, I think, especially in medical contexts, especially for food, health, and safety. So it makes people really think about when and where plastic should be used and then looking at the alternatives and end-of-life strategies. But there are huge uh questions about what this will mean for recycling plastic, especially in the near term. We're already seeing some municipalities shut down their recycling programs temporarily, including some municipalities in Alabama and Tennessee, given labor shortages as well. So both in the near term and the far term, um, I think it does bring some, some uh, greater perspective, but it also could have some short-term negative impacts too. 
Well, I think that's uh, true for all of your areas, and uh, there's lots more to talk about for each, but we're going to leave it there. Katie Fehrenbacher is a senior writer, conference chair at Verge Transport. Sarah Golden is senior energy analyst and conference chair for Verge Energy. Jim Giles covers both food and carbon systems and chairs the two Verge conferences with those names. And Lauren Phipps is the director and senior analyst of Circular Economy, who chairs our Circularity and Verge Circular conferences. Thanks to all of you. I'd love to check back in the not-too-distant future and see what's coming up for you next. Thanks very much. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks. Artificial trees that suck carbon dioxide from the air. Space shades that deflect the sun's rays from the Earth laser lightning rods that can control precipitation. These are some of the more extreme approaches to the climate crisis that fall under the category of geoengineering. The idea of using technology to manipulate, dare I say reboot, some of the Earth's natural processes. Thomas Costigan is a journalist who has been researching these innovations for many years. He founded the Climate Survivalist column for USA Today, has written for the Washington Post, National Geographic, and the Wall Street Journal, and is the best-selling author of The Green Book. This month, Costigan published a comprehensive book on the topic of geoengineering that is described as both uplifting and ominous. The title is certainly memorable, Hacking Planet Earth, How Geoengineering Can Help Us Reimagine the Future. He joins me now to do a little geeking out about this topic, Thomas, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you. Happy to geek out with you. <laughs> I love having fellow geeks. So what is geoengineering? Well, the, the technical definition is the deliberate manipulation of the environment to help thwart the effects of global warming. I broaden that definition in the book to include other artificial um, manipulations of things like the soil, etc. But the uh, two things are solar engineering and carbon engineering. So yeah, so I, 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 how is it being used today? Is this something, is this a futuristic thing or is it being used today? Absolutely being used today. And as I sort of scratched that there, I would argue it's been used since the time of agriculture, since we've manipulated the earth to our liking. Now, because Mother Nature cannot do her job anymore, because we have you know, messed it up so much through putting so much pollution into the atmosphere and creating an artificial planet, uh, we have a situation where cement um, and concrete are now the second most consumed materials on the planet besides water. So, you know, we have an artificial planet. We have to deal with that. And we are increasingly using tactics like geoengineering. And on a very simplistic measure, it is something like painting your roof white. That deflects the sun. That is solar engineering and cools what's below because dark surfaces obviously hold more heat than lighter ones. And if you go to the Mediterranean and places like that, you've seen that practiced for millennia. So we do that. We're, are, we're looking at other technologies that are a little more futuristic and cutting edge like carbon engineering. And that is sucking, as you <laughs> noted in your intro, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere through artificial means. Uh, we have trees that can do that now. We have different devices that can be moved around. We can put things uh, next to coal plants to reduce the amount of carbon emissions there. And then we also have storage capacities for the carbon that we get. And there's a new economy being built around this, the, the carbon tech economy. Um, and there's about $2 billion worth of funds that have flowed into companies that are in this space. So we're starting to see this embryonic movement in geoengineering manifest in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, on the solar side, of course, and obviously on the carbon side, because now we can make products with a lot of those, with a lot of that carbon that's been moved from the atmosphere down to earth and stored. So I think my audience is pretty familiar with carbon tech. And I wasn't, I wasn't clear actually until I started reading the book that it was part of geoengineering. What other solutions might they be already familiar with? You mentioned the, the white, painting the roof white, et cetera. So walk us through some of these, these technologies, though. 
Sure. I mean, there's some really far out ones. I mean, stratospheric aerosol uh, type of um, technologies that are seeding clouds. So they'll put in reflective aerosols into clouds high up in the atmosphere, and that will deflect the sun. Um, and that, in turn, will cool what's below. That's a very radical one that's being explored by um, – you know, uh, Scopex, and you can look that up. And there's a committee involved with that because, you know, the ramifications of some of these things we just don't know when you start to get into cloud manipulation. Uh, marine cloud brightening is another one that's been tested on a, on a smaller scale, but that's um, utilized to cool the oceans below and help marine life prosper. And that's being looked at as a, a real, real strong solution for the Great Barrier Reef and as anybody in the audience knows or uh, the listeners know, and, and you probably know, the Great Barrier Reef is, is dying before our eyes. The largest living organism on Earth is dying before our eyes. So it's a way to cool the oceans below. So that's, those are a couple of things on, on the solar side of, of um, that. And then you have um, other things like fake ice. Uh, spreading that throughout the the Arctic uh, to increase the albedo effect there, and albedo is just a reflection degree of, of the sun. You know, darker surfaces uh, hold in heat, and lighter surfaces push it back out. So when you have ice melt, as we all know, the glaciers are melting. That has a couple of different effects. Not only does it contribute uh, from a land perspective, uh, a land glacier to sea level rise, but it also holds heat in, and that just exacerbates the the problem of um of the melt that goes on in in the arctic so you know there's a couple different ways to look at it that way and then a really cool one which won the uh, rolex entrepreneur award i think a couple years ago and those are the ice stupas in the himalaya and uh what those do way high up when the when the, the snow and the ice start to melt increasingly earlier in the season due to global warming that um that water just rushes down and contributes to floods and the agricultural and season really doesn't start until later in the spring as we all know so a gentleman has created these natural cones uh there where they they freeze the the snow just by spraying a lot of the the uh, the droplets up as they come down the, the himalayas into the air they freeze in the air and they create these teepee-like structures. And that stays longer. Now, those structures stay longer and begin to melt later in the season. So farmers and villages high up in the Himalaya can actually have access to fresh water. So really cool, inventive things. And those also uh, increase the, you know, the, the possibility for the sun to, to better uh, reflect back up in the atmosphere and cool things there. So some really interesting and innovative technologies there, both, um, you know, in a very you know, simplistic way. And then obviously stratospheric aerosol is, is a different injections. Those are uh, on a very sophisticated level. So um, a lot of innovation on the, on the institutional and corporate side. And then as well, where I see the, the biggest, um, I think, possibilities are on the entrepreneurial side. Uh, small startups, uh, people that are creating those artificial trees that you mentioned before. So clearly a lot going on, but clearly we're entering a period of great uncertainty right now in the global economy. What what do you think stands in the way of some of these ideas being implemented? Is it simply the money or are people, you know, don't mess with mother nature kind of uh, uh, mentality? Could that, you know, what's what's really standing in the way? Sure. I think there's a couple of things, you know, we're seeing this obviously, and you know, it's, it's, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the public health crisis that we're going through right now and, and framing it in a similar way where prevention methods are obviously, you know, needed and urgent and exigent. Uh, but we also need solutions and climate can be framed in the same way that we need prevention methodologies in terms of mitigation. And that could be as simple as uh, turning down the, you know, the thermostat in your home, stopping, stopping your car from idling, turning off the lights when you need to, uh, you know, when you leave the room, all of that, all the mitigation that we already know and going electric away from fossil fuels. But we also need immediate solutions. And those have not received the attention that they have, um, you know, that the other steps have taken. 
And because I think, you know, we see this as a far off type of uh, possibility, we haven't taken those necessary steps today. And I think, you know, there's a, a broad awakening of, oh, my God, the stuff that we've heard about can really happen. And I think that same mentality holds true for climate change as well. So what's standing in the way has been, I think, a great degree of just lethargy and people not taking it as seriously and as, as you know, critically and as responsibly as possible. And I think that's changing now. Uh, policy, of course, that would put into to practice um, some type of funding for the experimentation of these as well as the oversight of these technologies. And we're seeing that happen with the Energy Innovation Bill that's stalled in Congress right now, but they did release $4 million to NOAA to uh, explore some geoengineering or what they call plan B possibilities. So we're starting to see the, you know, the policy side free ups there. But uh, the private sector is the biggest missing component. The private sector has to look at the scientific community as a source of new technologies and a source of new businesses uh, that can grow and really help save the planet and save us uh, as a society. And bridging those two gaps, bringing capital to solutions, I think is, is where we need to be. Uh, so prevention uh, certainly still needs to hold, but we also need to address real solutions that we can embrace today. Is there a fear factor? Absolutely. You know, I, uh, the original title for this book was Frankenplanet because I, you know, <laughs> looking at, yeah, I was looking at the other side of this as well. And, you know, you've seen the book, so you know that I do address those concerns. You know, what would happen if we did this in mass scale? Well, you know, we're responsible now and we have things like virtual, uh, you know, modeling that we can do and 3D modeling that we can do. So we can see how things play out on a scale like we've never been able to do before, before we put this into a, you know, big practice that could really do some harm to the planet. So I think we need to do some testing. I think we need to have some oversight. We need to have the right policies in place, raise awareness that these solutions are available to us now. And then engender the not only the public, but the investment community to get behind them to create solutions for us all. That's your call to action, Green Biz 350 listeners. And that was Thomas Costigan, author of the new book, Hacking Planet Earth, How Geoengineering Can Help Us Reimagine the Future. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. We love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay home and stay safe. And thanks so much for tuning in. Green Biz 350.